You're listening to the Nashville Labrie Conference podcast. In July of 2019, there was a weekend gathering in Nashville with lectures, workshops, conversations, and meals together. The theme of the conference was being human in a fragmenting world. Each episode of this podcast is one of the lectures or workshops from that conference. In order to receive email updates about the podcast, including lecture handouts, articles, and books referenced in the lecture, please subscribe for updates at nashvillelabreeconference.com. Today's episode features a lecture from Dave Friedrich. Dave is one of the workers at the Southboro Labrie branch, and this lecture is entitled, There's a Crack in Everything, The Broken Hallelujah of Leonard Cohen. There's a crack in everything, learning from the broken hallelujah of Leonard Cohen. And I've got a question. Who here is um, a creative writer or a singer-songwriter who's involved with music? You don't have to. There is. The the correlations or the shadowing of Christianity in Leonard Cohen's lyrics, but I've never really uh, attended anything that explained that or gave a little depth to that. So, um, yeah, just to find out more about that. Because over the years, I've been involved in music for a long time, and I've been drawn to certain things in his writing just from a uh, kind of a pull of the heart, yeah. not really understanding anything about how it correlated or not with Christianity, but now that I've, I've heard more that it does, but just need some context. So well, you're going to get that. That's uh, the last third of, of what we're going to do today. So, anyone else? Is that similar for some people or just... Who's been listening? Okay. Well, I have to say one of the things that is the, the reason why I came was that I, I toyed with this idea of um, the that it comes from pain and from broken things and, and from that and just this sort of juxtaposition that you know a lot of what we see as some of the most beautiful things that have been produced by our culture have come from places of brokenness, made places of loss, and places of pain, it's always struck me as interesting because the question of is brokenness and pain necessary for beautiful art? Because if things were good in the beginning, um, and beautiful, one would presume, um, just that kind of play. So I don't know if this has anything to do with it, but it's sort of in that same realm of spinning plates. That's where we're going to start. (laughs) <laughs> this is perfect. I didn't choose these people. <laughs> but, but in the sense of the, the fragmentation that this conference is supposed to be about, we're kind of backing up here, and we're, we're landing there and staying there for a while, pretty much actually the whole time, because that's what Leonard Cohen does, does so well. Uh, someone else, I think, had a hand up. I was just going to say that uh, I always hear Bob and I will say what a major influence Leonard Cohen is on him and his writing. And, oh, yeah. And I uh, uh, played there some Leonard Cohen music before the U2 concert. Yeah. 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 He's had a huge influence on, on writers, singer songwriters, and, and poets, too. Um, but, yeah, we'll, we'll talk maybe a bit about that, but not much. But that's certainly the case. 
So, there's a Christian song, I guess, they rewrote this particular song. Um, and it kind of upsets me because they changed the words and took out all the meaning that I had. <laughs> so, yeah. You know, there's that. So, I wanted to learn more about what draws me to this particular song. Leonard Cohen's version, you know, the original yes. you know, version. Because there is, like, you know, the Bergen Hallelujahs is... It's the human experience, I think, for a lot of us. And so, yes. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Yep. That's, yeah. I like uh, to be informed on how to talk about separation. You know, we feel like you're talking about the impact that has on our lives, you know, without, and it'd be helpful. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. As opposed to, um, I don't know, all things it could be. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's not always straightforward. What helpful is? Yeah. What do you ta- How do you take you know the, the trauma? Yeah. Of life, you know, I mean, because God obviously uses that. Yep. Um, in our journey as human beings, to lead us back to God and to you know let us know what redemption is. How do we talk about that? Well, in the midst of the yeah. Yeah. And don't take it. Yeah, don't take it there. Yeah. All good. All things work right. Oh yeah. 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 Exactly. To state it. Well, we're quick to move on from yeah. what's tragic and a grief story. Mm-hmm. And, and I like how uh, it says here what everybody knows, right? Yeah. But yeah, we defend again. Yeah. To yeah. Varying degrees. Exactly. Yeah. You're all going right where I'm going to be going. Thought <laughs> I was going to say, I had enjoyed a lot of his songs and had a couple albums, but hadn't read his poetry. And then when Bob Dylan won the Nobel Prize for Literature, I started seeing people write and say, no, this should have gone to Leonard Cohen. So I got interested in him again and read a little bit about his life, and I want to learn more. I haven't really read more than a couple of his poems, but I want to know more about yeah. it. Well, we'll read a few. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll engage with a few during this hour. And yeah, it's inter- his, inter- his interaction with uh, Bob Dylan is interesting too. The similarities and differences, that's a, that's a whole other thing you can talk about. But let's, let's go from there, um, and we'll talk a bit more. And yeah, if you want to interrupt, that's fine with me too. If we're moving along and, and you hear a song and you want to interact with it, we'll do that. This is more of a workshop. Um, but if not, we'll, we'll save stuff for the end, and if it bleeds over into dinner a bit, that'll be okay. It's okay with me, but if you need to go, and get up if you're hungry. <laughs> Feel free. But um, just so you know where I'm coming from, um, I'm not a poet, I'm not uh, a singer-songwriter, and I'm not an expert or a scholar on Leonard Cohen. And I don't approve of all that he said or done in his life. <laughs> if you know his life, uh, you probably would agree with me there. Um, he's got, yeah, a full life that we could talk about. But... Um, my goal is, well, I'm just an admirer, an admirer of Leonard Cohen. I appreciate him. I want to learn from him in, in this, these things that you've been talking about. And I feel I have learned from him in these ways. And I love, yeah, the things he addresses, the, the hard things, and, and how he does that with, it seems to me, sensitivity and care, especially how he chooses his words. He did not uh, do that lately. He spent a lot of time for every word he chose. He chose, but for me, I just started listening to his music about 25 years ago, and it was actually I was listening to a recorded Libri lecture before I had ever been to a Libri or met anybody from Libri. 
And the song that I heard on there was Bird on the Wire, classic Cohen. And as soon as I heard it, I was hooked. And I, I've just been listening to him on and off ever since. More recently, in the last few years. Um, and yeah, there's a ton to listen to, actually. He's had 15 studio albums, and he's had a number of live albums, plus all these books of poetry that he's written from the beginning, but all the way through his life. His last book of poetry came out just after he died. Um, it was put together uh, because he hadn't finished it uh, completely. His son helped put it together. But let's start with this song. Um, if you've never heard of Leonard Cohen, you know, you're going to hear this one. And just playing a part. Before Shrek, before Jeff Buckley covered this song, this song wasn't that well known. It was, it was pretty much obscure. And then these covers started happening, and these artists were like, this music, this song is incredible. So it started getting covered and becoming more well known, and which in fact also helped Leonard Cohen become more well known than he was. I mean, he, he, he's been semi-famous, um, but he was never super famous, especially in North America. It was more in Europe that he was a bigger deal, and in Canada where he was from. But this song got covered, um, if you go, there's a HuffPost Spotify list they put together of 141 different covers mm -hmm. from different artists. Wow. And then I just watched the new documentary about Leonard Cohen, has anyone seen this? Songs of Love, about the relationship between him and Mariana. And uh, they mentioned 300 covers of this song. And, yeah, well, that's the only cover we're going to hear today. So <laughs> I'm assuming you want to hear actual Leonard singing his songs. But, yeah, this is a good song. I mean, this is good on a lot of fronts. Uh, it's good musically. It's good lyrically. It's got a lot of things going on, even humor. And this is one of the things some people miss about Leonard Cohen. He's been called the godfather of gloom, and it's a little unfair. Uh, not totally unfair, <laughs> but uh, he was quite funny if you're paying attention, especially if you uh, listen to his interviews. He's cracking these little jokes, uh, especially after his time at Mount Baldy, which we'll, we'll get to in a minute. But look, he says, it goes like this, the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, the major lift. These are musical instructions for this song. <laughs> it's how to play the song. He's doing it, and it, it works. It's, it's funny. Um, and then uh, the baffled king composing Hallelujah. So who do you think he's referencing there? 
King David. That's right. Um, this was, he mentions several people who are, who've been influential on his life, and King David is, is one of them for sure, he says. Isaiah, another one from the Old Testament. But, um, in fact, yeah, Leonard Cohen wrote this, um, this great book of Psalms, in fact. Book of Mercy, has anyone read this? It's just basically prayers, he wrote. Um, really beautifully well done Psalms. And, uh, and a lot of what you say are Psalms of Lament. This is his specialty. This is, you could say, his, his spiritual gift, right? So, um, Psalms, if you don't know, Psalms are these sacred poems that a lot of times were sung, whether it was an individual or a collective singing. And a song of lament is a kind of complaint. It's expressing uh, confusion, grief, sorrow. But not just to express that, but to express that to God. And say, God, hear my cries. And a lament is very much a cry. And, and asking God to respond, to hear in some way. So this, uh, this song, Hallelujah, it's got all these themes, right, of love and loss. It's got the, uh, the sadness and the faith, all these different things, all intertwined and together in one song, in a, in a beautiful way. And uh, if we kept listening, we would hear this, of course, this, this very uh, famous line, and love is not a victory march, it's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. And see all those elements again there, just in two lines. He's got that. Um, uh, what he does so well is this articulate the beauty and the brokenness of life. That what's tragic and what's good. He does both of those things, if you're paying attention. And, uh, and he does it not just for himself, uh, but he does it in song, carefully, offered to others. And ultimately offered to God. So it's a broken Hallelujah. That's praise the Lord or praise Yahweh in Hebrew. That's the Hebrew name for God. That's what hallelujah means. But yeah, back to the brokenness. For me, I, I haven't been one who's been good at articulating sadness and grief over what is tragic in life. And so that's why I've always been a sucker for, for sad folk songs. And so that's why I love people like Nick Drake or early... Joni Mitchell or Tracy Chapman early on because um, they, they articulate what's going on in my heart this sadness I feel this anger sometimes even at what's wrong and they put into words that tragic feeling I have that I can't necessarily do all the time and they do it for me this is what the Psalms do of course for us um, and I think yeah what happens is you you feel like, oh, this, this just feels good <laughs> to have that said for me, to sing even that, and to join in that. And even something healing can start to happen in us. So that's why I think it's before we want to jump to redemption, you've got you to stay there and, and pay attention to what is wrong, what, what is the brokenness. Articulate that. Don't be too quick. Don't be too hasty to move on. And I think that's what we do a lot of times with someone. And they're sharing a tragic story. We want to get quick to the redemption part. And there's, there is redemption. Uh, 
uh, we can trust him and it's coming but don't go there too quickly uh, I'm guilty of that just as anyone else is but Leonard helps us to slow down <laughs> and, and pay attention to what's going on in the heart and, and maybe feel some healing and I think that's what this poem by Malcolm Geith uh, expresses Malcolm Geith, has anyone read any poetry by Malcolm Geith? yeah, he's so good um, he wears many hats. He's a poet. He's an Anglican priest in England. He's a singer-songwriter. He's an academic. And I'm convinced he's a hobbit. <laughs> he would never admit it. But my family actually got to have lunch with him one time. And he's got this tweed jacket, a cane, a pipe, crazy hair. He's really short, jolly. I mean, he is totally hobbit. But uh, he wrote this poem that you have for Leonard Cohen when, when Cohen died in 2016. And this is what he wrote on his blog that you can read and, and really read any of his poems. And he said, King David, the, the battle king composing, he's the model for us of the sacred singer, the psalmist in whom and through whom every passion can be lifted into poetry and through that poetry lifted to God. He said it often seemed to him that Leonard Cohen was a latter-day David, and I think there's something to that. Although, I think he's closer to the figure in Ecclesiastes. And uh, I read somewhere that said, Ecclesiastes is the Leonard Cohen of the Bible. And, uh, I've read a lot of Ecclesiastes, and I totally agree. I, I realized, actually, he's, he loved the wisdom literature of the Bible. And a lot of what he wrote and said, I'm convinced, is just a retelling of what goes on in wisdom literature in the Old Testament. All right, so let's read this poem. This is in the medieval rondo form. I'm a, I don't know much about that, but that's why it's called a rondo for Leonard Cohen. Like David's song, you named our pain and left us. But the songs remain to search our wounds and bring us balm till every song becomes a song. And your restraint is our refrain. Between the stained glass and the stain, the dark heart and the open vein. Between the heart's storm and the harm, like David's song. I see you by the window pane, alive within your own domain. The light is strong, the seas are calm. You chant again the telling charm that names and naming heals our pain, like David's song. So I think that it's in that naming sometimes that's just helpful for someone to name what's going on in the heart, what's sad, what's tragic. And that's not easy to do. That's a really hard thing to, to try and accomplish. And that's what Leonard Cohen was, was trying to do. And yeah, I think this is what's rare too in music. You know, we don't always see this. And why for so many of us this is refreshing. This kind of music. There's something. There's a, a passage in Ecclesiastes that says, A sad face makes the heart glad, or is good for the heart. And it's a strange thing, but it's so true. When you can say something, and your heart's just like, Thank you. When you can get that sadness out, it needs to be expressed. And, uh, and that's what he tries to do. I came across, I just got this great little book with all quotes from him in interviews up to 1993 or something. And 
It's excellent, all different kinds of themes. But here's what he says about the heart. The heart just cooks like shish kebab in everybody's breast. And we all live the life of the heart. And we all just try to make something out of the things that are right in front of us. The heart is not triumphant. It's filled with defeat. And it's filled with moments when you think you can't go on. And to have those moments named by a song, just not just mine, by anybody's song, is slow and melancholy. And it just makes you feel a lot better. He's always got that surprise ending that uh, I love. Um, But I think that's one of the things that sets him apart for people and why they're drawn to his music. That's why I am drawn to his music. Another thing is just how well he says what he says. And as I mentioned already, he's a poet. Before he was a singer-songwriter, he enjoyed a lot of success, actually, in Canada. He's from Canada, born in Quebec as a poet and a novelist. He wrote uh, a book called Beautiful Losers. I wouldn't necessarily recommend reading it. It's quite graphic. It was early on. Um, But Beautiful Losers is his way of saying a magnificent ruin, really. And so he always kind of referred back to that. But he realized he, he moved to Greece, and he was getting royalties from his poetry books, but it wasn't cutting it. He wasn't going to make it financially. So to solve his financial crisis, he did the obvious thing, he turned to the music scene this is to become a singer-songwriter. <laughs> so risky business right off the bat. And uh, really he just thought he would maybe be a guitarist because he could play um, acoustic guitar pretty well. There's a whole story behind that. But, but then he also thought, well, maybe I can do some songs. Music had always been part of his life, but it wasn't until 32 years of age that his first album came out. And, uh, and actually he was quite shy, extremely shy. And so actually Judy Collins was the one who got a hold of his first song, Suzanne, I think it was, and was like, this is amazing, I'm going to record this, and you need to come and play this at a time. And he's like, no way, no way. And he eventually agreed to, he got it on stage, and I think the guitar was out of tune, and he just fell apart, he started to cry, left the stage. And Judy Collins was like, we gotta do, we're going to tune your guitar, and you're going to get back out there and finish it. And he did. And the, the crowd went crazy. Like, this is awesome. And that was the beginning of his career. But, um, but yeah, he switches gears at 32 years of age, and he keeps writing until he's, his last album was in 2016 at 82 years of age. And I think that's one of his best, too. Um, you want it darker. A lot of, I think he actually just matured, in my opinion, with his lyrics and his music. But his last album there, at 82 years of age, he got a, um, a Grammy. He got a bunch of Juno Awards, which are the Canadian Grammys. And so I don't know, I just think, if you're in your 30s or you find yourself in your 30s and you're like, ah, oh, I don't know if I should make a career change, or, or you find yourself in your 80s and you're like, ah, oh, I can't do anything significant now, consider Leonard Cohen. <laughs> it might make you think differently. But back to his words, because he'd spent so many years writing poetry and actually living life, not always wisely, uh, especially early on, uh, his his lyrics were just at a different level. Uh, They really set him apart from other musicians. And you you know, a lot of music, music, if you just take away the music and you have just the words left, you're like, um, you know, it's like James Brown, you know, if (laughs) if you ever pull away just his words, you're like, 
like three words he said. <laughs> but it's all the passion behind it. Well, Leonard Cohen, you could take away the music and the words would still be good on their own. Um, but that's, uh, that's one of the things that set him apart. But this wasn't just a fluke. He wasn't just born a genius. This was from a lot of hard work. So I think that's good to remember. It was very normal for him to spend about two years per song from beginning to end. Two years. So Hallelujah took him five years and 80 drafts until he felt he got it down. So I think, yeah, if we are thinking of doing good art or doing anything well, anything that we want to have longevity, that will touch people and maybe help them, we should keep that in mind. So let's listen to another song. This is classic cone. We have to play this song, Bird on the Wire. This is the first song I heard. And on the album, in the notes, it says this is simultaneously a prayer and an anthem. And then he wrote, I always begin my concert with this song. It seems to return me to my duties. Like a bird on the wire Like a drunken midnight choir
no, has anyone not heard that song before? Okay. So yeah, that's, uh, he wrote that. To, like This was his second, first song in his second album in the 60s. And he's on, he's in Greece. He's left Montreal. And he's, uh, they're trying to get away, live a simple life, just write poetry and and some songs, and then they, they put up these telephone wires. There used to be no electricity, and then they brought electricity, and then this bird landed on one of the wires, and I think it was Mariana, who he was dating at the time, was like, look, look at the bird on the wire. And that was the beginning of the song, and, uh, and led him to, uh, it is, in a sense, a bit tragic to him, that this, this kind of island that he was living on, Hydra, um, was kind of, it wasn't all what he thought it was gonna be. Eventually, he leaves that. But, but yeah, this is an honest confession. This, uh, this is um, not something you would find on a Facebook post, typically, right? And, but again, for a lot of us, this is refreshing. Um, I found it that way. He wrote another song, Going Home, about wanting to write, quote, a manual for living with defeat. <laughs> and don't we need that? I think, you know, we have a lot written on how to succeed, and of course we need to know how to succeed, but what about when we fail, which is much of the time, if not most of the time, to some degree, don't we need help with that, how to articulate and live with that, and I think that's what he does, Um, and of course not just him, others do this as well, but I'm just giving him as an example, and I'd love to hear maybe later from you if there's there's others who you have found who does something similar for you, who, who your Leonard Cohen might be, or, or other Leonard Cohens. But yeah, this kind of, for Leonard again, this leads to prayer. It's not just confession to get it out, but he offers this to God. So if this song is a prayer, as it was described in the, in the jacket of the, the album, the these, I will make it all up. I swear by this song and by all that I've done wrong, I will make it all up to thee. It's a big promise. Um, so the, if, this, if this song is a prayer, it's most likely that these are more than just for the people he's wounded and hurt in his life. But to God, he's offering this up. Someone said if he, uh, if he had to fill out an application for something which he probably has never done in his life, and you get to that point where it came to occupation, what would you put? And he said, sinner. <laughs> that's, uh, that's who he knew he was. Um, but yeah, he, Leonard Cohen had a lot to offer, um, but ultimately he could never do what he promises here. And I think eventually he would agree to that, because decades later he wrote this song that we're going to mention in Anthem. He said, forget your perfect offering. There's no such thing that you can offer in yourself. And there's only one crack in all of creation where that kind of making up can happen. And I think he found it which we'll look into at the end. So yeah, at times you might have to modify these songs, these poems of Leonard Cohen to make them your own. But even if you do, there's much to learn because he sings about what everybody knows and what many of us find hard to articulate and really be honest with and have the courage to to face it. So with that, let's listen to Everybody Knows. This was released in 88 when Leonard Cohen's 54, and you'll notice every decade his voice gets 
deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, when he introduced this song in a concert in Amsterdam, he said, here's a terrible new song. Yes, it embodies all my darkest thoughts. Here it comes. parts of some songs and all of other songs, but everybody knows the dice are loaded. The game is fixed. You know, you're not going to win, and uh, life's not fair, and then you die. And uh, like Dick was trying to say, you, we need to be reminded that we're going to die, and that's what Leonard Cohen does. Just like if you read the book of Ecclesiastes, it does that over and over because it's a hard reality for us to face. Because he says, yet everybody rolls with their fingers crossed. <laughs> Even though you know the dice are loaded. Crossed fingers don't change loaded dice. They don't change the fact that you're going to die. And uh, because we do that because without resurrection hope, if we face what's tragic, we fall into despair. So typically we have to deny um, the tragic elements. We have to forget about it, put it at bay. It's too much for us to bear without resurrection reality, without falling into despair. And so what is it that everybody knows? Like this broken feeling that your father or your dog just died. So this broken feeling, this is touching on what Jews and Christians have traditionally called the fall. That things are not the way they're supposed to be. People are not the way they're supposed to be, and neither is anything in all of creation. Everything's got a crack in it, with an expiration date on it. So yeah, in another song, as he put in his last album, the poison enters into everything. So he went even more poignant at the end. And this is what he said. He lamented that, quote, nobody wants to believe that the central myth of our culture is this that the world is the manifestation of a fall. So myth, we usually hear myth, we think, oh, made-up story, something fake. Well, myth can also just mean a story of origins that can be true. And he was convinced 
that this world is the manifestation of a fall, that the world we live in is broken. There's a crack in everything, or as Ecclesiastes puts it, everything is vapor. And how do you deal with that emotionally, with wisdom? So in that same year, everybody knows, he was asked in the interview if the Second World War played a role in shaping what's widely perceived as his dark cast of mind. He replied this, Yes, I think so. I don't think any Jew, of which he was, who grew up during the war and had European parents could be untouched by that. Look at what human beings do to one another. And all that was learned from the Holocaust is that people can get away with such acts. Yes, war criminals are still being prosecuted, but this is mere nail polish on the claws. Human beings have a deeply homicidal appetite. I see it in myself and in everyone else. Acknowledging it is a first step towards controlling it. So I think that's what we need to keep in mind, not just for ourselves, but for others. And by the way, I have copies of these quotes, a lot of these quotes and sources. So if you're hearing this and you want to write it down or you want to know where you can find it, it's right there on one of those sheets. So yeah, everybody knows something of this tragic element in life. Eventually it touches us. We can try to keep it at bay. We can try to protect ourselves or our loved ones from it. But eventually it touches all of us to some degree or another. Like when your father or your dog just died. Well, these were two traumatic events in the life of Leonard Cohen. He didn't write about anything in the abstract or anything that he didn't himself personally experience. He wanted to write out of his own life. He didn't want to write abstractions. He wanted to write about real things that had happened to him. So, uh, early on, when he was a teenager, his family had a dog and it got lost in a snowstorm. And they never found it until in the spring, they found it under the porch. And it was rotting. And he was so upset, he never got another dog for the rest of his life. So he was a sensitive person. And then there was the greater tragedy of his father, who died when he was just nine years old. And who left him, interestingly, a library of poetry. And so one night after the funeral, he goes into his father's room and takes his father's favorite bow tie and slits a little slit in the side, writes his first poem, basically, slits it in the side, in that slit, takes that into the backyard in this procession, digs it, digs a hole and digs it in his, uh, buries it in his backyard. And years later, he told this to People magazine, It was the first thing I wrote. I've been digging in the garden for years, looking for it. Maybe that's all I'm doing, looking for the note. So that that was the beginning of what would become major themes in his life. Love and loss, the, the tragic and the beautiful death in poetry. And he said later, he's like, you know, maybe if after my father died, I went and climbed a mountain, Maybe I'd be a mountain climber now. Or if I got on a bus, maybe I'd be a bus driver. But I wrote a note. And that became a theme of his life. Well, we'll come back to the last verse that you have printed there at the end that mentions the the cross of Christ and the sacred heart of Christ. 
But for now, just know the beaches of Malibu refer to those beautiful beaches on California's coast, nicknamed the Boo by surfers and locals because they're so beautiful and if you're rich and famous, that's where you live. But it's also within 50 miles of the San Andreas Fault, so as Leonard put it, everybody knows it's coming apart. So take one last look at the Sacred Heart before it blows and everybody knows. <laughs> so again, see the, the beautiful and the tragic there, side by side. Now I'm convinced, so we're switching gears here now from the tragic to why he could engage the tragic the way he did, with such realism, with such honesty, with sometimes humor, with sometimes hope. And I think it's because of his Jewish faith that he had throughout his life to varying degrees. Um, and so that's going to bring us to our next song called Born in Chains. You have those notes as well. This was released in 2014 uh, when he's 80. And he said he'd been kicking this song around for 40 years <laughs> before this final version. He'd been, he'd been singing it in different ways. Uh, at one point it was called Taken Out of Egypt, but this version is what he called the pure gospel version. Born in Chains. female singers in the background, that was a kind of key for, for Cohen. He, in interviews, he was like, one of the reasons was, I just never liked my voice. It always sounded a lot better with these female singers <laughs> surrounding me. <laughs> Seemed to make up, he thought. He was like, and he also got, got an award in Canada for best male voice of the year. <laughs> he said, only in Canada would this happen. <laughs> I would get the best male voice. Uh, but... 
word of word, measure of, uh, sorry, blessed is the name, that's again the Jewish covenant name for God, Yahweh, that was revealed to Moses at the, the burning bush. This is what, um, who by fire, if you know that song, that would be what that song's referring to too. Um, but yeah, there's this long tradition with Jews not to pronounce the name because it's too holy. So we don't really know how it's pronounced. We guess that it's Yahweh. Uh, but he's in this tradition. He never says the word Yahweh, but he refers to the name that's burned on his chest or his heart. And yeah, he had this Jewish heritage. Both his grandfathers on both sides were rabbis. And so he was steeped in this tradition. And he's very familiar with the Bible and the imagery there. And he's not ashamed of that. So he says, I grew up in a very conservative, observant family. So yeah, it's not something I ever felt any distance from or, or really a need to reject. He said, it's essential, in fact, to my own survival. Torah values are the ones that inform my life. So he said, you could wonder if he really <laughs> believed that in every area of his life, especially when it came to sexuality. But throughout his life, he inhabited what he called the biblical landscape. I love that phrase. And back in 88, at 53, he lamented this, quote, A lot of information in our religious systems has been discarded, and people find themselves in predicaments that have the potential of being addressed from a religious point of view, but they lack the religious vocabulary to address it. And that's, I mean, in a sense, what we try to do with Libri and Libri conferences. We're trying to, to bring back that religious vocabulary that can help people address What's going on from a Christian point of view. And this is what he said, even stronger in 93 at 59. I know what it takes to survive. I know what a people needs to survive. And as I get older, I feel less modest about taking these positions. Because I realize we are the ones who wrote the Bible. The Jews, of which he was. And at our best, he says, we inhabit a biblical landscape. And this is where we should situate ourselves without apology for these things, for the burning bush, for those experiences. Those are the experiences that we have the obligation to manifest. That biblical landscape is our urgent invitation and we have to be there. Otherwise, it's not really worth saving or manifesting or redeeming anything unless we really take up that invitation to walk onto that biblical landscape. Preach it, Leonard. I mean, <laughs> that was a good sermon. No wonder his grandfathers, yeah, were rabbis. But a song to sing as we walk on that biblical landscape would be this next song released in 84 when he's 50. And someone once asked him, Leonard, what song do you wish you had written? He said, if it be your will. And I wrote it. <laughs> We're going to hear this whole song. This is a live version.
Jehi Leonard sings from a broken hill. It's interesting, a broken hallelujah. He sings from a broken hill, and I think that imagery is important to keep in mind. He, which we'll come back to, but he doesn't deny the darkness, and he doesn't despair over it, because he has this hope in this kind of God, you know, who can make things right, who can end this night. Of course, that's why we can look at the tragic things in life or in our own lives or in someone else's and not despair. Of all people, we should be able to talk about these things and not run from them with people. So in fact, this is the God who meets us in the night, who in fact comes to us, whose light comes to us through the cracks even of life. So these following lines are from the song Anthem, you have national anthems, you have choral anthems based on biblical passages, passages sung in churches. This is Cohen's anthem. This is Cohen's creed, as close as you could get. This was released in 1992 when he's 58. And again, this took him, surprise, surprise, 10 years to finish. And this is the chorus you have. Ring the bells that still can ring. Forget your perfect offering. There is a crack, a crack in everything. That's, though, how the light gets in. So, you see that brokenness, and then you see this extreme hope, too, that I think comes again from his Jewish faith, and from Jesus, which we're going to get to very soon. But this is what he said in an interview about these words. He didn't like to explain his songs, he liked people to engage them, and times people were like, tell me more about this song. He'd be like... I don't know if I can say anything better than that. <laughs> so, but this time he went and explained it quite a bit. He said, The future is no excuse for an abdication of your own personal responsibilities towards yourself and your job and your love. Ring the bells that still can ring. They're few and far between, but you can find them. The situation does not admit of solution, of perfection. This is not the place where you make things perfect, neither in your marriage, nor in your work, nor anything, nor your love of God, nor your love of family or country. The thing is imperfect. And worse, there's a crack in everything that you can put together. Physical objects, mental objects, constructions of any kind. But that's where the light gets in. And that's where the resurrection is. And that's where the return, that's where the repentance is. It's with the confrontation with the brokenness of things. So you see that? See that extreme? He's just an extreme description of the tragic. There's a crack in everything. Even in what's most precious to us. Even in our redemptive relationship with God. And yet, at the same time, this hope, the crack, is right where the light breaks in, where we find resurrection and return and repentance. So maybe you can see where this is going. But, again, we're going to be able to confront and enter the darkness to the extent that we believe in our God who raises the dead. So where denial is prevalent, where despair is prevalent, I'm pretty sure so is uh, the absence of the God who raises the dead, or at least belief in him. 
So this is a this resurrection reality of God. This resurrection, when we have faith that it's deeper and broader and greater than any tragic we encounter, then we can encounter those things with realism. And something that's something we can find in the cracks, even in this life, even in the cracks of our own work and relationships, our own emotions, and subconscious, our own hearts. That's where we can find it. Another song Cohen wrote this, but here, right here, between the birthmark and the stain, between the ocean and your open vein, between the snowman and the rain, once again, once again, love calls you by your name. And I think the deeper we find ourselves in the darkness, the deeper that call and rescue can be. And the greater our hallelujah. But in this age, we always have to keep in mind that it's always going to be from a broken hill that we sing the broken hallelujah. There's, there's things you need to know about his relationships to sex, drugs, and Zen Buddhism, but we don't have time for those. So maybe if we, um, if we have time to talk about it, we will later. But at least Zen Buddhism, we have to mention something that he, um, he had this relationship with Zen Buddhism. He never considered himself, in a sense, a Buddhist, even though he became a Zen Buddhist monk. He still always considered himself a Jew and Jewish. And he never thought uh, Buddhism uh, denied his faith in God. He could be practice the meditations of Buddhism and be okay with it. But <clears throat> there's a te- there was always a tension. And I think Buddhism influenced him more than he wanted to admit. But also, interestingly, even when he went to Mount Baldi and became a Zen Buddhist monk, he spent five years there, what actually happened was he got more rooted in his Jewish faith and discovered the depth of his faith. Um, and so... Uh, you can see this, this, con- this conflict coming out. The true self is the poem you have, and the true self according to Zen. True self, true self has no will. It's free from kill or do not kill. But while I am a novice still, I do embrace with all my will the first commitment, do not kill. <laughs> so he's like, yeah, I can't buy that. <laughs> Ten commandments, they still stand. You can't undo that, Zen. Um, and really, I think you see that his faith gets stronger after he leaves Mount Bali. There's a lot of Buddhism in his first album when he comes out, but then his Jewishness and his references to Jesus, I think, get stronger. And that's uh, in, your, in your poem you have there, The Collapse of Zen, which I think he wrote during his time at Mount Bali as well. <clears throat> and so as you imagine, this is the Jesus part. Um, and you can imagine, he understood Jesus as a fellow Jew. And he was friends with Irving Layton, I think his name is, he was a Canadian poet. And Irving Layton was part of this movement of Jews who saw Jesus as a brother, who they needed to get more acquainted with. And, um, and Leonard Cohen was very much into that. But I think he went even further. And, and there's evidence of this. He said in an interview earlier on, you know, he may be the most beautiful guy who ever walked the face of the earth. His generosity and especially how Jesus associated with the lowly, the outcast, the despised, and especially the way he was killed. 
He was really moved that it was his own people that killed Jesus. All this really touched him. And so Jesus is referenced, if you pay attention, all through his poetry, all through his songs, him and especially his cross, the way he died. And so it's evident, even I think from the songs you got tonight, so even in the song, If It Be Your Will, so he said that this is an old prayer he just rewrote. And the best candidate I know of that I've heard and read about is the prayer of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, where he says, Father, if it be your will, if there is a choice, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. So this is what Jesus prays, right? When he's about to ascend the broken hill of Golgotha. Before he ascends the bloody cross on Calvary. That's mentioned in that earlier song, Everybody Knows. That then leads us to the sacred heart. In the same verse that Cohen tells us to look at. Look at the sacred heart before it blows. And everybody knows. That sacred heart refers to the Roman Catholic tradition or devotion to the, what they understood as the pierced heart of Jesus on the cross. And he was very moved by this. He was, as a young boy, taken to Catholic Mass by his, uh, the maid in his house. And, uh, but this pierced heart of Jesus, this is described in this poem, The Collapse of Zen. One of the things that challenges the enlightenment of Zen. So he says, When Jesus loves me so much that blood comes out of his heart, and I climb a metal ladder into the hole in his bosom, which is caused by sorrow as big as China. And I enter the innermost room wearing white clothes, and I entreat, and I plead. Not this one, sir. Not that one. Sir, I beg you, sir. <coughs> and I look through his eyes as the helpless are shit on again, and the tender blooming nipple of mankind is caught in the pincers of power and muscle and money. Why should I seek enlightenment? It's a, a question that can take you in a few different directions, as it's supposed to. But this suffering love, he talks about this in another poem, of seeing through the eyes of Jesus that are so loving, it's more than Leonard Cohen can handle. It goes to places, Leonard's like, I can't go, that's too much. I can't, that's overwhelming. And I think no one really can take the love of Jesus to the full extent that Jesus did, to the people he took it to. You say, no, not, that's a little too far, Jesus. I think that's what he's wrestling with here. And as I've gone through his, his, all his music and a lot of his poetry, I don't think there's any crack in all of creation that had more significance for him than the crack on Calvary. And here's a... This is his first song on his first album. This is Suzanne. And uh, Jesus gets a lot of firsts, you'll notice, in his work. First song, first poem in his book of poetry. I'll mention those in a minute. Thank you. 
So yeah, in, in typical Leonard Cohen fashion, he transitions from talking about a woman to talking about Jesus without missing a beat, literally. And uh, it's a little side note, but if you listen to Leonard Cohen, you might be wondering sometimes, is he talking about a woman or is he talking about God? And I think the answer would be yes. <laughs> that was intentional. Um, I think you, we can talk more, more about that later. But uh, it's like this discussion with the Song of Solomon. Is this about a woman and a man or is this about God in Israel or Christ in the church? And I think Leonard Cohen would say yes. And I'm in that tradition. That's what I'm doing with my songs. I'm, I'm pretty convinced of that. But yeah, the, the cross here. But he himself was broken long before the sky would open, forsaken, almost human. He sank beneath their wisdom like a stone. Love that. Uh, this, this wisdom of the cross, it's, it's beyond our grasp. It sinks beyond our grasp in the water. And uh, he said this in 68, and he said this in a few different ways throughout his life. Our natural vocabulary is Judeo-Christian. That is our blood myth. Again, in the second sense of the true story of our origins. We have to rediscover the crucifixion. The crucifixion will again be understood as a universal symbol, not just as an experiment in sadism or masochism or arrogance. It will have to be rediscovered or discovered because that's where humanity is at, on the cross. So he talks about rediscovering the cross. He's entering this cross. In another poem he wrote this, um, but there will be a cross, a sign that some will understand, a secret meeting, a warning, a Jerusalem hidden in Jerusalem, I will be wearing white clothes, as usual. And I will enter the innermost place, have no doubt. In the near future, we will be seeing and hearing much more of this sort of thing from people like myself. <laughs> so, Christ and his cross, they were there in his first song, on his first album. They are there in, right at the beginning of his first book of poetry, Let Us Compare Mythologies. This poem for Wilf in his house, it's worth reading. They are there in his first poem of his last book of poetry, The Flame, that came out just after he died. And they're there, and this is the last thing we'll listen to, in the first song of his last album that came out just weeks before he died. This is called, You Want It Darker. Hineni, Hineni, I'm ready, Lord. Hineni is uh, this Hebrew word that Abraham used when God called him. It's the same word that Moses used at the burning bush when God called him. And it means something like, look, Lord, I'm here and I'm ready for whatever's coming. Even though I don't know what you're going to say or what you're going to do, I'm ready. 
And then he says these two lines side by side. Magnified, sanctified, be thy holy name. So that's the beginning of a Jewish prayer that's prayed at a funeral, a Jewish funeral. And then vilified, crucified in the human frame. So that's Jesus, broken, forsaken, the the flame we killed. And then from a Christian point of view, there's never been a greater crack, a bigger darkness in the human frame, in all of creation. And there's never been a greater resurrection light breaking through. So yes, from that broken hill, I too can say Hanani and sing the broken hallelujah. Thank you. That's uh, all I've got to say for my presentation part. But... Thank you for your patience and for the things you shared early on. But now I would love to hear from you. If you need to go, please please, please feel free to go if you want to get something to eat. But, um, but I would love to hear something else from you, whether you have a question about what I said or a comment, or you have your own interactions with Leonard Cohen's music and what it's done to you, it's done for you, or, or people similar to him. I would have done that for you as well. Yeah. Through your hearing his voice again, it's been a long time since I've actually heard him. Yes. Um, are you familiar with the, um, I guess it's a compilation that Jennifer Warners did, yeah. famously running the mm-hmm. I think in the late 80s maybe? Yeah. Um, there's a song on there of Leonard's that he does with her uh, called Joan of Arc. Yeah. That song is like one of the most brilliant things I've ever read. <laughs> and I've always wondered, never I've never met anybody that's heard that song. So I've tried to talk to people about it and they look at you like, yeah, that's weird. <laughs> um, is it just kind of a personification of um, Joan of Arc's martyrdom um, death moment or is there something else going on? What do you think? Or do you know? Well, he was... He's kind of... His voice is kind of the fire. Yeah. And she's kind of Joan of Arc. And they're yeah. talking to each other as she's being burned in the stake. Wow. Yeah. And it's like gorgeous. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure, you know, he doesn't really feel a ton. One of the things that probably is what the song is talking about is his um, his interest in Nico, if that's who his name, the, the singer, I don't know, when she was singing back in the 70s or the 80s, mm-hmm. but she might be representing Joan of Arc, but he did talk also about it being um, where he was tempted to become very religious. or more, It was the song that made him tempted to be more religious than any other song he's written or something like that. <laughs> um, but I don't know, he, he didn't say much more than that. He was very, you know, yeah. reserved in what... He would, how he would explain his songs. He wanted you to do the hard work. Yeah. But um, I haven't listened to that one very much. I've listened to it some, but, but I, yeah, maybe you have. Yeah, over the years I've just listened to it a lot. But, um, yeah. So, y'all need to listen to Joan of Arc. Joan of Arc. And maybe under Jennifer Warnes, because it was on her album, but he's singing it via W A R N E S, Jennifer Warnes. Um, but 
she did an album of all Leonard Cohen songs, and it's called Famous Blue Rain. And it's on that, but it's, it's him singing with her. Someone else had a quick Yeah. In eighth grade, I'm dating myself, but in eighth grade, my guitar teacher taught me to sing. I, I mean, I've never heard of Leonard Cohen, and I never knew it was his song. But, yeah. <laughs> no, I didn't feel like I didn't say it. I didn't say it. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I've known it since I was. Wow. I this is an observation, just as I'm reading his his lyrics, his poetry really. I find myself just like, Oh Lord, please let him like talk about Jesus then. Like please please tell me this man is Jesus. Like just when you see someone when you hear someone who's so experiencing his eyes have been so open to brokenness and hope and resurrection reality. It's like, I please give me some evidence. <laughs> like you're hungry for it. Like I'm combing, looking through. Like yes, surely he knows the Lord. You know, like, yeah. you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm yeah, I wish he. Yeah, I wish there was more explicit. I mean, that's exactly. But, my, yeah. but there is a lot of evidence. Yeah. There was an insight into the almost human. You know. Oh yeah. Well, that was his early. Yeah, that was his earlier almost human. I mean, I think it's a point to, to divinity. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. He realized that this, is, this isn't just someone I admire as a man. This is someone I admire as something different. Oh yeah. Well, the lady who he wrote that about, Suzanne, it was just a platonic relationship, and uh, she the, she had an interview where she said, "Yeah, Leonard Cohen and I were we prayed to Jesus together." And, and even in his last book of poetry, he's talking about this time he's, he's like alone at Christmas and he's praying to the one who this is all about. Yeah. Um, and even, this is really cool, the la- he, does, he sent off an email, I think it was the last thing he wrote was an email to a friend, and the last lines were, blessed are the peacemakers. Mm-hmm. And so the, the last words he expressed were the words of Jesus. Wow. I mean, that's what was on his heart. And so, um, I mean, he wouldn't... Definitely wasn't like some conservative, right. you know. Right. But uh, but he he was definitely to me, yeah. He yeah. he was committed somehow. It's funny yeah. to me how in my heart, even as you're speaking, like longing, like this is the part we're telling me. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I don't have a ton more. I mean, there's a lot of poetry that references him, yeah. and uh, but how much I don't know. God only knows. But um, just an observation. Yeah. Yes. When you talk about like, poetry referencing him, um, I think two folks who are my Leonard Cohen's right now are Julian Baker and Brian Rabbit. Uh, and they do songs together um, a few years ago, and it's called How It Gets In. And I'm like, oh, they're probably referencing Leonard Cohen. <laughs> Can you say those names again? Julian Baker. Julian Baker? Mm-hmm. Okay. And Brian Rabbit, which is a band. Um, those of you who know recently um, passed, year passed away. Um, they really like spiral into the darkness really well. Julian Baker, I think she, she's from Nashville, maybe, um, yeah. and she has a background of faith, um, and wrestles with that a lot. And then the lead singer from Fred Rabbit wrestles with faith a lot as well, but I think more from like, an atheist standpoint. And, yeah. Um, so it can get pretty like, I think you have to be careful, like, depending on who you are as a person, like, how much you just like, don't find Rabbit, um, because he takes it. So this kind of, his reduction is not, it's, um, yeah. 
but Julie Baker's not harder to tell. Um, they're also just incredible musicians. Yeah. Like, their voices and music and like their lyrics are just beautiful. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Anyone else? All right, we'll leave it there. Yeah, there's there's quotes up here if you wanted those references. Um, if you want to know more about books or poetry, you can come up and ask me. But thanks for coming. Thank you. Enjoy dinner. You're welcome. Thanks for listening. For more information and updates about future conferences, sign up at nashvillelibreconference.com. Special thanks to the Rabbit Room Podcast Network for their know-how and hosting of this podcast. You can find their podcast network at rabbitroom.com. And a special thank you to my friend, Drew Miller, for providing the podcast music. You can find more about his upcoming albums, Desolation and Consolation, through his website, drewmillersongs.com.